The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com.
us to turn to you when we're rejoicing and happy. Help us to turn to you when we're down and miserable and having an awful day. Because you were there all the time without ceasing. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you, brother. As you looked at your bulletin, you saw the Lord's Supper on there. And after talking with our deacons yesterday, we decided to give the best opportunity next week for others who couldn't come out this week to partake together with us. That's why we did not partake this morning. But uh, you're flexible. You're Baptist. You're always flexible, right? Amen. And that's how we roll. But this morning, I want you to know we are praying for a fellow sister church. We've restarted our praying for churches. Last week was All Nations with Pastor Luis. And this is Bethel Baptist Church off uh, 152 and uh, almost Maplewoods Parkway. That's not the road I'm looking for. Up that way. Bethel's been around a long time. And it's Old Berry Road. Thank you. I was trying to think of the exact thing. This is Marty. Uh, I keep wanting to say Marty Harkey. Marty Harkey was at the seminary years ago. This is Marty Beamer, and uh, he is their pastor. They merged with some folks from another Clay Platt church with Bethel Baptist about two or three years ago, and they are at a point where, where we prayed for them last year. We asked, Marty, how can we pray for you? And he said, we need more space. And guess what? They still need more space. That's a great praise to have. And so he asked us to pray for that and that they would steward the resources wise, wisely and well, but also, secondly, that they would be great ministers of the gospel in the areas where they are. Uh, this is just north of Maple Woods, just north of uh, 152. It's an area that's very open uh, as far as churches and the need for churches to be planted. So we said we'd pray for him, and we certainly will. I hope when they take screen captures of me that I, uh, I told him, I said, I didn't get a good picture of you, and he said, send it to me. And he said, that's okay. Sometimes you get weird faces, but this is him preaching, and uh, he said, I just want you to know the Word of God is king for us, so no matter what my face looks like, it's what Christ is exalted matters. And so so there it is, and I uh, love a brother who does that. So let's go before the Lord and pray, and we are going to try and unpack a quote-unquote easier section this week of Revelation chapter 11 as we do. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's go before the Lord. If you're joining us online, thank you for being with us as well in this uh, time of weather that we're having. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who reigns. Father, in songs that are different to us this morning in terms of uh, uh, words and, and, and uh, just melodies and all the things that we sing, we thank you that the words ring true, that you are the one who is high and lifted up. There is no one who can usurp you from your throne. There's no one, Lord, who can take you and say, what have you done or why have you done this? Your arm is not too short as to save us, and there's nothing, Father, that is within your grasp that you cannot achieve to fulfill your will. Father, we're so grateful for those things because bound up in that omnipotence and that omniscience and the all-knowing and all-powerfulness is our salvation, is our forgiveness, is our uh, connection to you through your Son, our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus. All the great biblical truths that we know hang in the balance if you are not who you say you are. But Father, we are here to affirm on one of the coldest days we've had in many years that you are exactly who you say you are and you're doing exactly what you said you would do and that is to make us more like Jesus Christ and to propagate the gospel all throughout the world. And we thank you for a sister church who partners with us in that, and Bethel Baptist. Thank you for uh, Brother Marty and a team of other pastors who help him in, a, in an area that is in desperate need of the gospel. 
Father, we know our two counties, Clay and Platt, are, are uh, the most unreached, perhaps, in the whole state, within the metroplex of the whole area. We need the gospel here. So, Father, would you bless them as they look for a facility that includes not only members that would be in that, that facility, but also visitors and people coming to Christ. And we rejoice that where the gospel is preached, you are blessing salvations and baptisms and all the things that we know. And we pray for discipleship, that people wouldn't just be a number. As we know, they would grow to be a great, mighty warrior, man and woman of God. So, Father, we pray for them. Help them to be good gospel ministers. And, Lord, as we look at our own things this year, as we talk about buildings and expansions and, and all the work that goes forth and the, the, the emphasis on discipleship within our own ranks, would you bless us the same? And we pray for all these things because we know that you are glorified in them. Thank you, Lord, uh, for those watching online in this weather and those here. We ask for your wisdom as we step into a book that is very much a difficult book, but one you said is, the, is blessed to us and for us as we read and study it. Father, we pray for your wisdom. Forgive our sins today, and thank you in Christ they are. We ask this today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I will invite you to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And we'll be starting in verse 15 this morning. And uh, we are entering and have entered, and there's no... We, we said this when we started the study last May that once we got to about chapter 10, there's no turning back. You're committed. It's uh, like one of those uh, short videos I saw on my Facebook feed a couple days ago where the guy took a picture, a video of his camper and his truck driving by. And the caption on the video said, I had to go five miles down the road to go back and pick up my camera because there was no place for me to turn around anywhere near. And that's kind of how we are. There's no exit points. There's just no way off. You're on the road. You're committed. And so here we are. Last week, we were committed to understanding the, the two witnesses and all that came with Revelation 11. Today, we kind of get a little bit of a break, sort of. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a break that a lot of people will agree upon because there's not a lot of things to disagree about. It's, it's where no matter how you interpret Revelation, this verse, these verses are a, uh, a breath of fresh air before we start into some of the hardest chapters of the book. So if you're able to stand this morning... We are in a series called God Wins, and no matter if you interpret this literally, symbolically, literally and symbolic, or somewhere in between, the bottom line is God wins, and that's what we take away from this. And so I pray you're blessed by what you hear and what you read and, and study this morning. We'll pick it up in verse 15 and go down to the end of the chapter. Hear God's word this morning. Be reading out of the ESV. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, King, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Heard that in our songs this morning, didn't we? And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And you notice something that's missing there? We usually have that phrase, who is to come, because this is a look at the very final, final judgment that is to come, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath, verse 18, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple, verse 19, in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple, and there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Kind of sounds like our weather the last, no, I'm just kidding. But it is, does feel that way. 
I want you to know that this is the seventh trumpet being blown. And we'll review that briefly in a moment. But as we get ready to go into this, chapters 12 through 15 are going to be another break before we start the intensification of what we now know is the end of the world. But God wins. And that's what I want you to see today. Will you pray with me as we go for the Lord? And let's ask him to bless our time again. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for your great word. We thank you for this final scene at the end of another series of seven. We saw the seven seals. We got to see into heaven and hear the seven trumpets. We get to see once again into the glimpse of what things will be like on that great day, capital D, that comes when you bring to fulfillment all that came to be. And Father, whether we believe we're raptured out before, in the middle, or after, or somewhere in all that, what matters most is that you are glorified. And that what is said here is the the theme and praise of our lips even now as we live through these days that sometimes are hard to take account of. But Father, you are the God of all history. As is often said, it is truly your story and it is in your hands. So Father, as we study this, may our hearts be lifted higher to heaven. May our praises be deeper in you. And may we find greater identity in Christ as we live out our faith in this topsy-turvy world that we know on planet Earth. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. It's because he lives that we also live today. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, many of you have seen this guy before. Uh, this is, um, this is uh, Handel, Handel's Messiah. Many of you have heard that name before, and around Christmas time, we just missed preaching on this, but this is a man who would often come before many people and give his great Handel's Messiah. How many of you have ever been to Handel's Messiah, Kaufman Center, and other places? And you know that famous scene, the, the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, these verses that we just read were inspired by and actually quoted in Handel's Messiah. But it was not so long ago that when, when time came to be, that as he came to write his story in 1741, George Frederick Handel locked himself in a room for 24 days. He literally did not move. And he wrote what now became the most famous composition of, uh, composition of uh, probably song ever made. And it wasn't until 1743 when King George heard this, and many of you are aware of this tradition, that at the very end, as they get to the hallelujah chorus, hallelujah, 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 that, that chorus, when they get there, everybody stands up because King George stood up. Whether King George was a Christian or not, you can debate that till the cows come home. But the climax of the hallelujah chorus was taken here from Revelation 11, 15 through 19. And as a, as a tribute to that, we stand up every time that the Handel's Messiah is done. But what is interesting about all this is that Handel himself said that he felt closer to God's presence because one thing about the whole composition of it, it's all Scripture. It's all Scripture all the time. It's just a, a whole composition of, of verses put to song, and classical as it may be, it's God's Word, and that always lifts one's heart, and it's hard to debate that. Well, as we're unfolding Revelation 11, we have the hallelujah chorus going on. After all the terribleness that we looked at last week, there's once again another time out in heaven, an interlude, a vision of what is to come in the days ahead. And it's a call, as we saw in Psalm 100, as you'll see, a call to joyful worship of serving the Lord with gladness. We are called to serve him with gladness and come before his presence with thanksgiving. That's what we're called to do. And this whole picture of Revelation is not about just fire and brimstone. It's about God receiving what is due to him. And what does he do? He's due worship. What is worship? 
It's ascribing or giving to God all the praise and all the thankfulness that he deserves. And that's what it's about. You know, Johann Sebastian Bach, a contemporary of, of, of Handel, said that music's aim is for God's glory. You know, in a lot of churches, and we are so blessed that we are a singing church, that when music goes up on the screen, even if it's not your melody, it's not your groove, you still sing it because it's true. And we thank God for that in our church. But worship, according to Scripture, is not an act in and of itself. It's giving God everything he deserves. And that is the importance of it. Do we desire to worship as these at the end desire to worship? You know, it's often been said, if you don't want to worship God here, why would you want to worship God in heaven there and at that time? Makes no sense. Is worship like a hotel for you? Just a place you're staying at to get through a service? Or is it like a home for you where you find your greatest encouragement through the week? The big idea this morning is simply this, to boil down all the section of Revelation, is that worship is not about any entertainment of people. It's about exalting God. It's about lifting up God. Because you're going to see a contrast between these two entities, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of, of the Christ there in verse 15. And we're going to talk about those different things. But friends, we need both. You know, some people come to church because they love preaching. They love amen and give it to them and talk about the culture and do all these things. And they love preaching, but they just stand like statues when the singing goes on. And there are some who come that it's all about the singing. And when the preaching comes, they're on their phones, they're, doing, they're chatting, they're doing this, they're up and down out the service five million times. Friends, we need both. You need gospel-centered preaching and you need gospel-centered singing. You cannot divorce the two. Deep theology leads to deep worship, or it should, in our church and everywhere else. And so this morning, what you're going to see is that Christ is going to be exalted. He's going to be worshiped. He's going to be brought to bear. But before we get there, I want to give you a little background of where we have been, because it's been a minute, and it's been another minute, and a lot of details in between. How have we gotten here? Well, John is riding on an Isle of Patmos, a rocky island on the outcrops of, of Greece, and he sees God high and lifted up. And last summer, we went through those seven churches that we wrote, he wrote to, and then he started into the seven seals. I'm going to put this up on the screen. It's hard to see. There was a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, a pale horse, a, a, and all these different horses. Saints were slain. Wrath was brought. And finally, angels were assembled. If you want the, the Cliff Notes version, that's about as good as it gets, by the way. But through all this, Christ is lifted high. But there's this big complaint in Revelation chapter 4. Who's worthy to break the seal? And we knew that was only Jesus Christ who could do that. But we've talked about these series of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And these seven seals were the first of the seven. And they would go through six of them at one time. And, and finally, in the seventh, they would give a glimpse of heaven, just like you're seeing now. And then we transitioned over to the seven trumpets. And this was most recent, the seven trumpets. They had everything from land disasters, and you can see this on your screen, a third of the seas destroyed. The rivers and springs were contaminated. There was also horrific stinging sores, and a third of humanity destroyed, and all these things. Some we said was literal, some we said was symbolic, but the big point of it was is something was going to happen. God was in control of all this. And do you remember what people did? Look back at Revelation verse, chapter 9, verse 20. Do you remember how people responded to this? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, the idols of gold and silver or bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, 
nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All this hardened people's hearts. And we're going to see that again today as we look at Revelation 11. But now we're at the seventh trumpet. The second cycle of seven is coming to an end. And this is after in John 10, or excuse me, in Revelation 10, John was given a commission by God once again to go to all the world and share the gospel and to bring forth the truth of the word of God. Remember, he ate the scroll and all that stuff. And finally, Revelation 11, these two witnesses come out and they share the gospel. Again, if you take that literally or symbolically, the point is, is that God's powerful word is going to go forth in this world and people are not going to like it. And they're never going to like it. And you get to this heavenly scene and you come down to what we now see as the final vision of the seventh trumpet. But after that, you're going to start to see an intensification. It's kind of like these uh, dolls. You remember these dolls like this? These Russian dolls? As you take one bigger one and one out 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 and they get bigger to smaller. Some of you all have these in your homes. What happens is, is after Revelation 11, it starts to get more intense and more intense and more magnified. That's so magnified that it gets so minute that it's almost hard to tell what's future and what's now and what's then and all that stuff. But I want you to know, God wins. Keep that simple thing before your mind. God wins. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? Are you ready to look at this? I want you to go through this with me. I want you to see the first. These are not on your notes. We've left it blank for you. If you want to take notes, that's fine. But I want you to see first off, I want you to see first off the heaven rejoices. Look at verses 15 through 17. Heaven rejoices. And what is heaven rejoicing over? Well, we'll get to that. But look at verse 15 again. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And why is he sounding his trumpet? Because God's timing is here. The waiting is over. Everything that has been prophesied, everything that has been given to all the people before Christ, even Christ himself, is coming to bear. It's like when you're waiting as a kid for Christmas and you finally pull off that last thing and you know it's Christmas Eve and Christmas is coming and you just, you, you love that. Or a bride on her wedding day, whatever your thing is. Some people to pay $30 to go stand in negative 30 degree wind chill last night. Whatever your success in life is, go do it. But the waiting was over and it's a, it's a meticulous time frame. We are seeing the later, it has not happened yet, but what he's telling us here is that there's a sense that this is happening, and it's decisive. This is very decisive. What is happening in chapter 11 is the blowing of the trumpet is the final sound that comes. The final trumpet blast is here. This is not the end. We will see the end played out in later detail, but again, he's giving you a vision of it at the end of the seventh trumpets. It's almost like some of you sports fans say, when it comes to a time of the game, and you know that something has happened for the Chiefs this year. It's been drop passes a lot of times. And you say this, the game is over. Why is the game over? Because you know that play or that situation that should have turned out a different way has led to the end. Or they take a knee. And so it is here in Revelation chapter 11. The game is now over. But notice how this angel interacts. He gives them a loud voice. He gives them a loud voice. And unlike the breaking of the seventh seal, which was in silence, here you see powerfully loud voices roaring out. Revelation is a noisy book. God is not whispering. God is not whispering. He's shouting. He's giving you his all. And why are they shouting? Because God wins. God wins. And he gives the all. 
And you see that here where he says they came with, and your Bible may say different translations here, but several of them say the word specifically in the Greek, loud voices. And this is powerfully loud. The angels are loud. The elders are loud. The saints are loud. Everybody's loud. And that's why as you come to worship, there needs to be orderliness to worship, and there should be. But don't be afraid to use your outside voice to sing praises to God in church. Amen? It's okay. If you can scream in 30, negative, 30 degrees at a Chiefs stadium, you ought to have the same gusto for what you do here, for what God has done for you in Christ as we worship him in the church. They roar. So what is heaven celebrating? What is heaven celebrating? Well, you notice what he says here. It says the kingdom of this world, it's a transfer of kingdoms. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Notice that the word kingdom here is not plural. Your Bible should have, in verse 15, it should have singular, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of this world, and kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of this world is what Adam started out to be. Adam gave everything and was given everything, but we know that's not how it ended up. Genesis 3 makes very clear that through Adam, with Romans 5, sin entered the world, and Satan took over that power, he usurped it, and he sets kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation. That's not how God wanted it to be. But here we see a transfer over, a transferring of one kingdom to the next. You know, Satan tried to take over God, didn't he? Or Christ specifically. Remember in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, everything that you see will be yours. And of course, that never happened. You know, theologians love to debate, could he have bowed down? Could he have given into it? No. Guys, our God, our Christ, never sins. He never fails, and he never bows down to Satan or any of Satan's devices. And that's good news for you. But notice that what it says here, this kingdom of the world, which represents sin and Satan and dominion and evilness, notice here that it has become. Do you notice that turnover of the phrase? This kingdom here has become. It, it, this is past tense. It's, it, it's saying to you that it's been stopped. The kingdom of this world has been plugged up. It's been brought to bear. And where he says the kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord, it tells us that the kingdom has become unstoppable. Let me give you an instance here. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. Isaiah gave that seven, 800 years before Christ. It looked like it had already happened, but it had not yet happened. Same thing's going on right here. What John is seeing and what he's trying to communicate through the power of the Spirit is that Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. Come hell or high water, it will continue on. I'm so grateful for that because when we fumble the ball, so to speak, sorry for all the football analogies today. They're just on the mind. When all these things come to bear and we fail and, and, and fumble our lives and our testimony and our faith at times, God is still faithful. While we are faithless, God is still faithful. But I want you to notice what's fulfilled here. On Wednesday nights, we spend a whole year going through the Lord's Prayer, crazy as that is. But here, the Lord's Prayer is now fulfilled. The Lord's Prayer is now fulfilled. We give thanks to you, God, who is and is and who is to come, and his kingdom that we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is now being fulfilled. Heaven rejoices because what Christ taught them to pray is being fulfilled. 
God is sovereign now. His will right now is not done on earth as it is in heaven. We're still waiting that day. But God, the Father's pledge to Christ the Son in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right feet until I make your enemies a footstool. And the Lord will extend the mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Christ promised, the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament, Psalm 110, comes to fulfillment here. Friends, I want you to know our culture tells us that seeing is believing. If you can't see it, you can't believe it. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because we have an upside-down kingdom. You're poor in spirit, you're rich in grace. You're meek, you inherit the earth. You mourn, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're comforted. You want to submit, well, then you soar with the power that Christ gives you. You lose your life, but you gain it. You are humble, but you're exalted. Everything that Christ gives us looks different from the world's perspective, but here in Revelation 11, it finally shows that God rules forever and ever and ever and ever. I've said it once, you're going to hear me say it again. I am not looking forward to starting what is going to kick off in Iowa this week, the Iowa caucuses and all the that goes like this around political candidates. Look, that's important. It has its place, and we should be involved as much as God allows us. But man, it just when you see something like this in Revelation 11, it really makes it minuscule, doesn't it? Puts it in perspective. And so too, John needed that reminder. That's what heaven is rejoicing about. That's number one. Number two, I want you to see the eternity of God's kingdom. And we spent a little bit on this now, but I want you to see at the end of verse 15, that phrase, and he reigns forever and ever. He reigns forever and ever. And this is all kingdoms will be terminated by the death penalty under Adam. But here we see that God's kingdom will continue on forever and ever and ever. Genesis 3.19 said that dust you are and to dust you will return. And this is a, a kind of a quote of what is coming out of Daniel chapter 2. And I'll just read it for you. Daniel chapter 2, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision. He said, I saw a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It was stuck on a statue with feet of iron and clay. And then iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken to pieces. And at the same time, they became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind slept them away. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and was filled with the whole earth. We've said before that Revelation is basically studying the New Testament. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision of what would happen to kingdoms around the world at some time. And that kingdoms would be broken by a big rock that was struck out. And they would break down the statue that represented all the worlds. And I want to tell you that is exactly what's being fulfilled here at the end of verse 15. Daniel chapter 2, that big rock. Well, who's the rock? It's Christ. Christ is going to smash against every other kingdom in this world because they cannot stand up against him. No one can stand within his power. And unlike human kingdoms, his will last forever and ever. And this is number two under heavens, the eternity of God's kingdom, the eternity of God's kingdom. Amy, if you want to go ahead and put that up for the next one, please, that'd be great. The, the earth is mad. And so what happens after this, as, as heaven comes to bear, the people start to get mad. And we'll get there in just a second. But I want you to see, as you go down through these verses, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones, they fall before him. You get to verse 17, and they say, We give thanks to you, the Lord our God. We give thanks to you, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. They thank God for his eternity. 
eternality. They thank God for his reign. They thank God for all that he's given them. But notice verse 18, the earth is now mad. The earth is now mad. Everything that God has promised his people has been a praise for them, but the earth does not want it. This harkens back to all that we know. Everything that we have is a reminder that this world is not our own. Two illustrations I want to share with you. Adrianum Judson, I never say his name right, the great missionary who was living in Southeast Asia at the time, went up a river um, in, the, in the country of what we now know as Burma, was known as Burma then, and he sailed up a river. And every river tributary he went on, he saw old cities that were covered by vines. And in these vines, he would go up and examine the ruins. And the ruins had inscriptions on them that said, this great king lived here. And he'd go up these rivers of these uncharted territories for Western missionaries. And he'd see city after city after city after city that was great at one time, but was dead then. And as he got to his final destination, he was going to see the great king to share Christianity with him at that time. He shared with him, Judson did, about all these kingdoms that were about to fail. And he shared with the king that, king, someday you're going to die. Someday you will be like these other kingdoms and there will be no hope for you. Will you submit your life to Jesus Christ? Fortunately, the man never did. But you know what happened to his kingdom? It passed away. Friends, why do these people give thanks in verse 17 before people get mad? Because Christ reigns forever and has this great power. I want to remind you, this world is not your friend. This world will never be your friend. This culture will never be your friend. Everything in this world, everything that this world offers to you will never be enough for you. Christ is enough for you. Hold on to what lasts. Hold on to the one who lasts forever. But why do people get mad? I mean, notice this. The nations raged in verse 18. The earth is mad. They are mad. Why are they mad? They are mad because now God is taking them to task. They have not been praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as we often say. They don't care that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. They don't care that he has the sparrows that fall to the ground and can count the numbers on your head. They don't care that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. They don't care about God and anything he has offered. They just want themselves. They want their sin. But Psalm chapter 2, if you want to go back there, hold your spot in Revelation 11. Go to Psalm 2. You need to see this again. So often we try to make our Christianity palatable to the world. I want to be clear. We need to be clear about who we are, what we are as Christians, what we stand for, who we stand for. But so often we play and cater to this world. We are so misidentified as Christians. If you go to most places that worship Jesus Christ, you could not tell the difference between that and a Taylor Swift concert with or without Travis Kelsey there. You go to most churches, and Christ is not exalted. The band is. The show begins. Friends, there should be a distinctiveness that makes us Christian. There should be a distinctiveness that, to put it very simply in Psalm 2 words, that makes the world mad. Notice what it says here. Verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and be the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords. 
But notice what God's response is. God's not worried. God's not shaking in his boots. What's it say he does? He sets in the heavens and he does his best laugh. Ha, 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 ha. He doesn't worried about anything. The Lord holds them in derision. They, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion and my holy Zion on my holy hill. When you get to verse 18, what you are seeing is that people are being people. The kings of the earth who are enemies of Christ have fought against him. And what does he do? He goes and he installs a new king. And do you know what his name is? His name is Jesus Christ. And if you were to read the rest of Psalm 2, you will know that it says that I've installed my king Zion on my holy hill. And he says, you are my son today. I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. What he's saying is this. At the end of days, people are going to do what people outside of Jesus do. They will curse God. They will hate God even more. They will not love him. They will not come to him, but they will be what they are. And this rage is a filled opposition. You want to make your way to Revelation 11, that would be great. It's coming. Revelation 12, 12 puts it this way. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on the earth, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Friends, this world knows that their time is coming short. All of heaven is rejoicing because God's putting in place what he said. The worship has begun, but judgment day has come. Look at verse 18. But your wrath has come. Judgment day is imminent. Judgment day is imminent. And this judgment day with it will be one that is coming. It's one that is not going to be played a part. We've seen this theme. You know, I read last night, and I'm going to quote it for you because I sent this to one of my best friends, our Presbyterian friend, Brian, who preached the longest sermon at Tower View in history a couple months ago. Many of you know who that is. Love him dearly. But I sent him a quote from a famous theologian, and I want you to hear what he said. This famous theologian, based on Revelation 11:18, said, quote, I've come to realize that I don't revere, respect, or even like Revelation anymore. I think it's a horrible depiction of God. He's a ruthless tyrant who absolutely detests anyone who does not worship him with all their heart, soul, or mind. He just wants to crush all the opposition and to torture everyone who does not believe in Jesus. Signed, Bart Ehrman, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, liberal theologian. Friends, God's wrath is not his way to say, I told you so. God's wrath is doing exactly what he said to do. God has given the world chance after chance after chance after chance to come to know him. And what has the world said? No, 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 no. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes to him whom we must give account. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, Jesus said that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. The point of all this is, is that as he gets down to this prayer, he says that the wrath has come, the anger of God has come, and the time for the dead to be judged is there, and they are the ones who will be destroying the earth. Amy, if you want to put up the rest of that slide, that'd be great. Thank you. God is patiently waiting. God is not 
just trying to crush people. God loved his creation, but creation said, I'm going this way. And what we know is that God will bring a judgment upon his people. But notice that there is a reward in there for us. Did you notice that in verse 18? He's going to do two things. He's going to reward the servants. Reward the servants. What is that? We don't know. But Romans 2 said God will give to each person according to what he has done. We don't know what these rewards are. We, we talked about this in earlier Revelation. Is it going to be great crowns that we receive? Is it going to be great praise we receive? We really don't know. 1 Corinthians and Revelation 20 are really the only places we see this. But what we know is, is that if you're faithful to God, he's going to take care of you. And in that taking care of you, there's some blessing that comes. And the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both great and small, that talks about Revelation 20, where the great and small will be judged before the book will be opened, the book of life and judgment will come. But what we know is that there, he will have a special place for those who are destroying the earth. Do you see that last phrase in verse 18? What does that have to do with this? Those who are destroying the earth. There's a lot of interpretations on this. He's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. What is he saying? He's probably referring to those who are taking extra things from the earth that are not necessary to take. I said, Darren, have you gone green environmentalist on us? Not quite, but that's what it says. He's destroying those who are destroying the earth. Those who are causing havoc and sinful recklessness on this earth will have a special judgment, it seems, for them when that day comes. Could that be industrial waste or, or whatever? We don't really know. But the point of it is, is God will destroy in hell soul and body and add on that everything sinful that they did here on this earth. What a terrible day that will be. But do you know that all of this is brought in a song of worship before God? They aren't doing what liberal Bart Ehrman said, that this is a terrible picture of God. We should never preach the book of Revelation. How dare God do those things? No. They're praising God for every step he's taken to rid the world of these folks and their influence. And friends, that should be our praise too. We do not have a mindless, spineless worship. The content of our worship is that because God is holy and his wrath has come, it's sealed in Christ, we have every reason to praise him. I mean, doesn't your stomach turn every time you turn on the news or read something on social media or hear something from someone else that's so grotesque that you think, how could somebody do that? If your stomach turns at those things, that is a gift of God because that means that you have a conscience. Everyone does. But you have a conscience as a Christian to know this is not how things ought to be. But someday it will be righted. And then you see verse 19, and we'll close with this. Verse 19, as all this comes, heaven's temple is finally unveiled. Heaven's temple is finally unveiled. For those of you who grew up in the 80s know this is not Indiana Jones and the, uh, uh, the, not, the, uh, the temple, not the Temple of Doom. Which one is it? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Thank you. You, know, you all know who you are. This is not in Tanis, Egypt, where uh, 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 Indiana is trying to find the great Ark of the Covenant and shift off to some random secret holding facility at Area 51 in the Nevada desert. No, this is not Hollywood. But notice what it says. God's temple in heaven was open, and the Ark of the what? The Ark of the Covenant is there. Well, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? We really don't know. It was stolen away at some point when the temple was destroyed in, in uh, 587 by Nebuchadnezzar, never to be seen again. We don't really know what happened to it. 
But what we do know is what Hebrews 8.5 says. They, speaking of those who serve here on earth, they serve in the temple sanctuary that's a copy of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. So what is this? The Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the communion with God that will be perfected only when Jesus returns and perfected only through Jesus Christ. We can have communion with God here on this earth. We are to cast all our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. But it's broken because we're broken. But someday in God's heavenly temple, everything that Christ has done, everything that we do not have right, will be righted because what he has done. And notice that, Notice what happens here. There's flashes of lightning. There's peals of thunder. There's an earthquake. Is this literal or symbolic? And all of Nelson's congregation said, yes, it's both. Love you, brother, wherever you are. You're on, you're on the front row today. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you're visiting, this is Pastor Nelson. He often puts two uh, statements that are both going to get a yes answer together, and we say yes. That's what we do. That's been our revelation takeaway after all these months. What does this mean for you? As heaven's temples come, let me give you four quick things as we close. What does this mean for you? First, Christ's kingdom is coming. There's no stopping it. You need not wait for any special warning. He's told you it's coming. Be ready. Be ready. Secondly, do you long for the kingdom of God to come? Amen. Do you yearn for it? Do you, do you desire it? Do you want it to come now? And friends, there's work to be done, is there not? There are people to hear the gospel. There are disciples to be made. There are churches to be planted. There are all the great things that come. But the one thing that we know is that as you yearn for the coming of Christ, it is guaranteed. What you suffer here on this earth, what you lose here on this earth, will be rewarded you 10, 20, 30 times fold more in heaven. Don't give up your faithfulness. And delight in God's eternality. He is forever and ever and ever and ever. He knows what's going to happen. He's brought to plan what will happen, and that is someone you can trust. Did God know before eternity passed you'd be here on January 14th in negative 30 windshield at Tower View Baptist Church? Yeah. Amen. He did. And he also knows that every step that you take here on this earth is one step closer to him. But it's all about worshiping him. If we're to be the best-fitted person, people, for Christ there, we need to be worshiping and sharing about Christ right here, right now, as he calls us out. Will you pray with me together? Next week, Revelation 12, a woman, a beast, and a child. If you're ready to decipher that, we will be here. It's good to have you this morning. Let's pray together as we close with our last song. Father, thank you as we come to you. Lots of details here, Lord. Lots of pictures, once again, of what Christ has done. And lots of pictures, Lord, about what it is to follow you in days that are not easy. But Father, we join that great heavenly chorus that Handel wrote about so many years ago, that even though things are not as they should be, or as we desire them to be through the lens of your scripture, we know that someday they will be as you've set it out to be. We thank you, Lord as we know well from Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, whether on the earth or under the earth, whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank you 
that you said that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature because every square inch is literally yours. Father, where Satan seems to have a foothold, we thank you that sovereignly, providentially, behind the scenes, that you are turning this world upside down for your glory, that there is an army of people who are coming to Christ who may not make the five o'clock news or the social media banter that have come to know you because someone shared the gospel with them. And they will be, as Revelation 7 said, among that great multitude from every tribe, kindred, and nation. Father, as we close out the seven trumpets and we take a break for a moment in the next several weeks to look at chapters 12 through 16, would you be glorified as we try to unpack all these details? But we thank you in the end of things, you win. And that's really as simple as we can lay it out. May that be our hope and our trust in these cold days in these politically crazy days, in a country that has long since lost you, and in churches perhaps that have two at times, would you forgive us and get us back on the path that it is to follow you, to grow in you, and be a part of you. Lord, we love you. We ask this all today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand as we sing our last song, please?